name is Jonathan Habercroft, and this is the Just Riot Theory podcast. Writing in the wake of the 1968 global student protests, political theorist Hannah Arendt observed, but while boycotts, sit-ins, and demonstrations were successful in eliminating discriminatory laws and ordinances in the South, they proved utter failures and became counterproductive when they encountered the social conditions of large urban centers. The stark needs of the black ghetto on one side, the overriding interests of white lower income groups in respect to housing and education on the other. All this mode of action could do, and indeed did, was to bring these conditions into the open, into the streets, where the basic irreconcilability of interests was dangerously exposed. Arendt's essay on violence argues, in part, that the failure of the protest movements of the late 1960s stem from the turn to violence by its leaders and the movement's rejection of the power of collective action. While the essay is most famous for its theoretical distinction between power and violence, the essay also offers a dismissal of the student anti-war movement and the black power movement as political failures. Arendt, like many other commentators since, argues that these movements did not work because they failed to convert their demands into meaningful political change. Today, a similar set of charges is leveled against the contemporary protest movements, such as Black Lives Matter and Occupy Wall Street. These movements are often described as spontaneous, leaderless, and as a result, ineffective. Chidem Chidem's recent book, In the Street, Democratic Action, Theatricality, and Political Action, challenges this way of thinking about protest movements. Chidam argues that instead of viewing mass protest movements through the prism of success and failure, they should be interpreted as democratic enactments that create new actors and innovative practices that long outlive the initial protests. In the Street invites us to think about protests from the aesthetic dimension, as if these movements were works of art. Drawing on the idea of theatricality, Chidam argues that these protests are performances that prompt both the protesters and the bystanders to act differently, forge new relationships, and consider the phenomena being protested from a different perspective. Measuring a protest movement by success or failure hides a lot of how protest movements change society. Even if the movements of 1968 or 2011 were failures in the sense of achieving the protesters' demands, both of the movements, like great works of art, changed the way society saw the problems those movements were contesting. Chidem Chidem is an associate professor of political science at Union College in Schenectady, New York. She is the author of In the Street, Democratic Action, Theatricality, and Political Friendship, and she joins me today to discuss the aesthetic dimension of political protest. Today I'm joined by Chidam Chidam, uh, and we are going to discuss her new book, In the Street, which is about democratic action, theatricality, and political friendship. Uh, so welcome, Chidam. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a great pleasure. <laughs> it's great to have you on. I'm excited to talk about this book because it's it's looking at the political theory of protest. So I, I'd want to begin today by asking how you became interested in political protest. Well, thank you for that question as well. I mean, I think there are um, there is one broader answer to that, and then one more specific answer. Uh, the broader answer uh, is um, I decided to study political theory after reading Hannah Arendt uh, in in my undergrad, uh, and the thing that really got my attention was his uh, her emphasis on. Um, the joy and gratification of acting together, right? And and to me, as someone who was uh, living in Turkey, which was at that point a democratizing but deeply repressive uh, country, the joy and gratification of acting together crystallized in those moments of protests. So so that was the that was the impetus for me to study political theory in the first place. But in terms of the specific answer. Um, uh, I guess uh, what shaped this book uh, was uh, the Gezi protests uh, themselves. Um, Gezi protests took place in 2013 in Turkey uh, against uh, Erdogan's increasingly authoritarian regime. 
It was totally unexpected. Uh, it caught uh, many observers by surprise. It was perhaps one of the biggest uh, popular uprisings that took place in the history of the Turkish Republic. Um, and pure luck would have it that I was there uh, when the protests started. Uh, I, I was teaching in the United States at the time, but um, I was coming over to visit uh, friends and family, and um, I landed um, the day that protesters took over the park. Um, so I participated in the protest. I went to the park uh, where the protesters occupied for more than two weeks. Um, um, I met with strangers, uh, you know, shared in discussion uh, with them, um, met with uh, old friends from high school and college. Uh, so it was this unique experience um, uh, that I never had in my life before, which really exemplified what Arendt was talking about in terms of the joy and gratification of acting together. Uh, but what was interesting to me most was um, how the events were um, discussed by uh, commentators in the immediate aftermath of the events. Um, in certain ways, it wasn't surprising that the uh, government, AKP government, uh, would dismiss the events or try to trivialize their significance. And that was happening even as the events were unfolding, um, when Erdogan was talking about the events as, um, you know, the work of a couple of vandals or, you know, a, a mere riot or something, um, who are, you know, destroying our beautiful city. These people are destroying our beautiful city. And of course, he uh, increased the uh, rhetoric a little more as he realized that this was not something that he could merely dismiss. And then at that point, he began to talk about how international forces were organizing this behind the scenes, etc. So there was that um, bipolar attitude in his account, too. But that was not surprising, right? It was, it was precisely what you would expect from a government trying to dismiss, trying to retain their authority. What was surprising to me was how uh, people who were supportive of the events, who were supporting the protesters, um, uh, talked about the events in such a way that it trivialized its significance as well, mainly by suggesting that it didn't lead to any significant permanent political change afterwards. So that was, that was the impetus of this book in the sense that how could we understand this trivializing attitude that is coming from people who are in support of the events and in support of the protesters. How can we understand that? And that, that led to the uh, book itself. Yeah, and so that's, that's what I really like about the book, right? You're making an argument against what I'd say is contemporary political theory and like all kinds of currents, so Marxist as well as kind of liberal currents, that they understand protest movements, I'd say, as kind of almost proto-revolutions often. If it doesn't lead to some obvious change, then it's irrelevant. And you kind of push back against that. And, you know, I think we, we've seen a lot of these kinds of movements over the last decade plus, right? So we can look at certainly Gezi Park, but before that, Occupy Wall Street and the Arab Spring could be seen as examples. And kind of more recently, the movement for Black Lives and perhaps the Me Too movement. They're all leaderless. And they're, they're often described as spontaneous. And I want to talk a little bit about why you think that might not be accurate. And they don't necessarily convert into direct political change. So why do you think this perspective on these protest movements is wrong? So uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, and this is one of the things that um, I start the book with. Uh, it seems to me that whenever we talk about Occupy Wall Street, Arab Spring, etc., or Black Lives Matter, uh, it seems as if uh, uh, the commentators, again, as you said, ranging from uh, post-Marxists to democratic theorists to pundits in the newspapers, um, seem to have this what I call bipolar attitude. Um, on the one hand, they praise the spontaneity of the events, which they equate with um, um, the absence of organizational efforts. And I want to come back to that because I think these are spontaneous events. I think the problem is that these commentators have a misconception of what spontaneity is. So I want to talk about that as well. But, but what we see is on the one hand, they 
um, um, talk about the importance of the festive atmosphere, irreducible diversity of the protesters, uh, this um, um, horizontal networks that are created, uh, etc. On the other hand, um, at the same time, um, these same commentators uh, take issue with the participants' alleged inability to organize, uh, warning them uh, that uh, in the absence of a meaningful political organization, uh, such revolts are bound to fail or remain mere revolts, uh, not become uh, revolutions or produce uh, um, permanent political change. And I think what is happening in those accounts is that you see this um, discussions that seem to me to be trapped in this um, endless and what I consider fruitless uh, debates uh, regarding the relative virtues of spontaneity and organization. Uh, and and in, in this preoccupation with uh, success and failure framework. Um, and it seems to me that what is being lost uh, as a result of this constant discussion on the importance of uh, organization, um, etc., cetera, uh, is um, what Kristen Rose drawing on Marx calls the working existence of democracy itself. In other words, what is being erased from these accounts is the on-the-ground efforts of these political actors who, if for a brief period, um, uh, did something that was unexpected and um, created um, a, a new way of doing things. Uh, and it seems as if in this uh, obsession with whether or not they succeeded, completely erase uh, those uh, practices, those um, um, new ways of doing and seeing that were created by the uh, protesters themselves. And I think there is that that is a huge loss uh, from the perspective of democratic view. So let's let's spend a bit of time thinking about spontaneity. Yeah. So the, re the reason I'm interested in it, it's a bit selfish, I'll admit, but in my research on riots, one of the common questions or dismissals I get is that riots aren't political. It's often described as apolitical because they're spontaneous, right? So I've got like different versions of this. One concerns kind of the analogy between riots and other forms of political resistance, and they can all be institutionalized. Hence, you can kind of analyze whether they're justified or not or, or make sense of them. The other charge is one that because they're spontaneous, after the riot ends, there's no political change that comes from it. So even if there's political content, such as kind of a riot following a police shooting, it has no political efficacy. So I, this kind of raises a couple of questions. So first of all, what do you think people mean, especially both kind of commentators, so kind of the common parlance, but also political theorists in either kind of a Marxist bent or a, a deliberative democratic bent mean when they call a protest spontaneous? Again, as I, as I was suggesting, I won't hold on to the spontaneity, uh, but uh, question the way it is used by, by these commentators and, and theorists. It seems to me that what is happening here is that these commentators are falsely equating spontaneity with immediacy. Uh, in other words, they talk about these events um, uh, as sudden uh, explosions, right? That That is a language that is commonly used, or um, 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 immediate reactions to an event, uh, or um, um, emotional eruptions, right? Uh, this uh, explosions of discontent or rage uh, that uh, is being discussed. And, and, and it seems as if one of the problems that they associate with these events is that uh, there is a degree of rashness and irrationality that comes along with all of this. Uh, um, and I, I want to argue that all of this uh, has its roots um, in um, a way of thinking about uh, democratic action uh, that uh, goes way all the way back to uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, so let me try to clarify why I think there is, uh, why do I make that <laughs> seemingly uh, uh, unjustifiable jump? Because I think what is happening here is that uh, what these uh, commentators and theorists are doing is to hold on to a conception of democratic action uh, as an unmediated expression of uh, people's will or, uh, and or instantaneous popular eruptions. 
Um, and that is, that seems to me that that understanding of popular action or that understanding of democratic action as the expression, as the immediate expression of uh, people's political will uh, is directly coming uh, from Rousseau. So, so I think there are two, two issues here. Um, um, first, by characterizing these events as uh, sudden instantaneous events, the commentators uh, reduce spontaneous protest to immediate and authentic expressions of protesters as a unified subject. And this is, this is directly from Rousseau, right? We think about democracy as the expression of the will of the people as, uh, as a unified subject. And I say this because the word spontaneous, uh, which comes from Latin, so sponte, means of one's own accord, right? So spontaneity then can uh, imply immediacy only when an action is undertaken by a subject with a single will. That is to say, I can spontaneously decide to stand up and I stand up and that's an instantaneous event because I'm a subject with a single will. What I am trying to say that is that when we are talking about democratic moments where people act together, right? there, there is the diversity of uh, the protest that is, um, uh, that is being erased when we think about them as, as if they are happening all of a sudden, as if uh, these people are acting as one unified subject. So, so I think that is one of the uh, major problems that is important on these protests from these commentators due to their conceptualization of democratic action uh, as the immediate expression of people's will. Um, so, so it is then not surprising that um, in these accounts uh, that equate spontaneity with immediacy, uh, we see the erasure of the rich and varied practices uh, of diverse political actors who self-organize and create these events of their own accord. Because if you have uh, multiple people who are doing things together of their own accord, they have to somehow decide on how to act, how to do things. And that means that what is happening is not instantaneous, sudden eruptions in the way that uh, these people are suggesting. Um, and the second problem that is, I think, directly related to this, is that um, when we think about democratic action uh, or spontaneous action as this immediate reaction of the people, um, and again, this goes back to Rousseau, who is also suggesting that uh, the popular sovereignty becomes um, can only be expressed in the assembly, in the moment when, they, when people come together, um, the problem becomes uh, the issue of transience of those moments, right? This is a problem for Rousseau as well, right? If people go to the assembly uh, to legislate, but it is, it is always a problem for Rousseau to ensure the continuity of that engagement. Um, and, and the transience becomes a problem to be resolved in that sense. And I think that is something that is also uh, incorporated into these accounts that think about these events as spontaneous, that is to say, understood as immediate, unorganized, etc. that their transience is also a, a problem uh, that needs to be resolved. And how can it be resolved then, uh, given the, uh, that immediacy implies a degree of rashness, irrationality as well? Uh, it, it, uh, what we can do as political theorists following Rousseau, it seems as if, uh, according to these accounts, is to find a way to guide the people's actions so that they can do something that is um, um, successful in the end, that, that can lead to political change. And I think that turn, uh, uh, that uh, belief in people's ability to rule themselves, but the constant suspicion that they will be unable to do so because they, they can uh, act rashly and irrationally, and therefore they need some sort of guidance, is, is something that is already in Rousseau and it's taken up by all, um, uh, all, all different various accounts of political theory, including the Marxist uh, strands. It is something that is shared in those accounts as well. So actually, I think if we go back, like maybe because of our our age, like the, the previous twenty years are kind of like significant. But uh, to kind of steal a contemporary meme, okay, boomer. Like I think a lot of the a lot of the contemporary theorists you deal with in the book um, are all kind of of that post 
1968 generation, right? So Antonio Negri, Jurgen Habermas, and Jacques Rancière, who are all kind of three very prominent contemporary democratic theorists. And they developed their their theory in response to 1968. So how do you think the events of that year shaped political theory's understanding of protest and democracy? Yeah, uh, at least that's that's what I argued, uh, that uh, democratic theory is shaped in response to 1968. Um, And it is is in certain ways surprising. We never think about Negri and Habermas and uh, Rancière, maybe more with Negri, but as active political uh, actors who were engaged in these events, uh, uh, perhaps it's most surprising when we talk about Habermas, but he was very much involved in what was going on in 1960s in, in Germany. Uh, and I think one of the issues that I uh, want to emphasize is that um, 1968 was a watershed year uh, all over the world in a similar way that uh, Arab Spring was for us, perhaps. Uh, that had reverberations all around uh, and took different forms uh, on the basis of the country and the issues and the concerns that the protesters had. Uh, But it was this um, year of uh, uh, almost like the springtime of people, right? It was was a year of protests. And and it raised for these democratic theorists uh, who were... um, uh, associated with different strands of Marxism, right? Uh, with Habermas, Frankfurt School, with Ranciere, he was um, um, working with Althusser at this time, and Negri with autonomous Marxism. Um, 68 raised questions that are occupying us today as well. And those questions are questions such as, um, what did these events uh, fail? Uh, many for many, uh, 1968 was a huge disappointment in the sense that we were so close to a revolution and it didn't happen. Uh, and and uh, it also raised questions about the subject of emancipatory movements. Who is the subject of emancipatory uh, movements? Um, because clearly, for all these Marxists, it was a question to be at, at rest because the uh, protests were started by the students and not by the workers. So that was a, that was a major question. Um, and also the question of what is the role of the intellectual in such events? I think those three questions are questions that occupy us today as well. And th- it was in response to those three questions that I argue um, uh, Negri, Habermas, and uh, Rancière formulated their own um, uh, democratic their own versions of democratic theory. So for Negri, for instance, the question becomes, how can we think about the revolutionary subject in a way that is not limited to the working class? Uh, And his biggest contribution in certain ways is this notion of multitude that has its origins in the 1970s when he was talking about the social worker, etc. For Habermas, I think the issue, uh, his very contentious relationship with the uh, work uh, with the students in 1968 um, uh, led him to rethink his own position later on uh, and and, um, emphasize the importance of those events, which he was undermining in certain ways by accusing uh, the students um, participating in uh, a phantom revolution, right? That was one of the criticisms that he had. Um, He was saying that, you know, these events, you have this idea that you can have a revolution, but you you don't have the material conditions that can assure that uh, kind of uh, radical change. Um, But I think it seems to me that afterwards, um, uh, he he came to think about the significance of those events and and began to think about the um, transience of those uh, moments, not as a failure, but as uh, some sort of an advantage for those kind of moments of political action, Uh, um, since they they could um, raise issues that were not um, uh, considered before within the context of the uh, liberal democratic uh, institutional system. Uh, without uh, um, falling into the trap of uh, a calcified, bureaucratized way of thinking about things. So, so I think that is uh, what he took from that experience. And, and for Rancière, of course, it was the whole issue is that, um, uh, and, and this is why Rancière is such an important figure in this book and for me, 
was his own uh, reaction to how his former uh, teacher, uh, Louis Althusser, responded to uh, uh, the 68 uh, events uh, by this very dismissive attitude. Uh, uh, famously, Althusser called uh, 1968 a petty bourgeois uprising. Uh, that was bound to fail due to the class uh, identity of the protesters. And it was that was the mind-boggling thing for uh, Rancière, is that how could you dismiss and um, erase the significance of uh, such a significant event? Um, so I think it is that question, uh, um, and his criticism of Althusser as turning political theory into a theory of education is something uh, that is crucial uh, for Rancière and how his uh, theory was shaped after 1968. So the other thinker, you've mentioned her already as being quite influential on your thought, is, is Hannah Arendt, who, while there's not a chapter on her in the book, she's kind of she kind of runs as a thread kind of throughout. So Arendt also had kind of a pretty influential reaction to 68. And I, I've just been I've just been prepping on violence for my class, like reading it again. And I was struck by how like reactionary it was. Like, like going back and reading it, the, and I read it last like probably ten years ago. And reading it now, I'm, I'm almost came convinced that she'd be like voting for Nixon come '72, right? <laughs> she, it was like very much like tough on crime, um, like very hard, very dismissive of Martin Luther King to say nothing of kind of the inner city uprisings in '68. And also very dismissive of the student movement, which, as you say, is a bit surprising, right? So, so what do you make of Arendt's reaction to '68? How, how do we kind of accord that with her kind of earlier theories of political action? Yes, and and it, this is uh, I presented this a couple of times, and this was one of the um, one of the reactions that I got in terms of uh, aren't you being a little too uh, harsh on Arendt here? And it, clearly, she kind of slipped. Uh, here uh, with her attitude towards the protesters uh, in 1968. I mean, uh, for those who have not read um, uh, On Violence re recently, uh, let me briefly uh, give an account of how she describes these events. So um, this is what she says. Um, the protests were undertaken by a relatively harmless, these are her words, uh, naive young rebels who, again, she says, unknowingly tested the political system, which came crashing down before their astonished eyes. Um, and in this account, uh, Arendt seems to, you know, of course, there is this patronizing attitude towards the protesters that, that is undeniable, right? It's, it's like before their astonished eyes, the uh, whole system comes crumbling down. And, and, and of course, the problem in her account is that uh, she calls this as, as a textbook case of uh, a revolution, which did not, which failed to become one, uh, because the students um, were not ready take, uh, to take on the responsibility uh, of um, taking control of the events. Right? It was, in, in other words, a failure of uh, students uh, um, to turn this into a revolutionary moment. And I think part of this is part of this uh, very dismissive account that is very surprising coming from someone who uh, insists on the importance of um, political action and, and importance of thinking about political action in non-instrumental terms, right? That is what makes RN so significant and different from other political theories in so many ways. Part of this is related to, I think, the fact that she was getting most of her information from... Um, Raymond Aron at this time. Um, uh, so uh, Arendt publishes on violence in 1969. Uh, Aron's book comes around uh, a year, about a year earlier, and, and she cites him a couple of times in um, on violence. And Aron calls this, um, uh, Aron's book is called uh, The Elusive Revolution, um, An Anatomy of Student Revolt. Where, where he insists that we should not listen to what the students are saying in these protests, uh, because basically they don't know what they are saying. Instead, we should look at what might have led them to uh, um, act out in this way. Right. So, so part of it uh, can be explained by that. But I think the other part, uh, and I think this is the significant point that I want to make, is that I think this is not a slip on Arendt's account. I think this is 
baked in uh, to Arendt's thinking, if we look look into her writings in On Revolution, for instance, where she talks about, she makes this distinction between um, liberation and freedom. And, and, and liberation refers to that moment of revolt uh, and, and freedom is uh, the institutionalization of that um, 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 moment of freedom uh, so that freedom can has a, have, a, to use her words, can have a house to dwell in, right? Uh, so it seems as if Arendt has that conception of mere revolt versus revolution and those mere revolts that fail to build a house where uh, freedom can dwell in and are are considered um, failures in, in in those terms which which is in uh, tension with Arendt's account of political action as something non-instrumental um, and and valuable in and of itself uh, 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 which you can see in human condition etc so I also want to talk a bit about Ranciere. So you've mentioned him before. Um, he's a, And he's also a thinker of great interest to me. So would you mind explaining how his ideas, and I think especially his idea, his understanding of political action as, his, as disruptive enactment of equality, shape your understanding of protest? So yes, I mean, Ranciere, it is, it is interesting. So when I first started working on Ranciere, I... Um, I started reading him because I thought he was so similar to Negri and I wanted to criticize him. And then after reading him, this whole new world uh, opened up before my eyes where it became clear to me that uh, what he is saying is so radically different from um, uh, what Negri was uh, talking about in his own work. And one of the issues, I think there are two points that I really value in Ranciere's work. Uh, one of them is his emphasis on the role of the intellectual, which he insists that we should find a way to talk about these events without putting ourselves above the actors and, and speaking for them, um, or, or worse, uh, telling them what they ought to do, uh, which he sees as a major problem um, in um, political theory. But also his account of how we need to see these events uh, as moments where those who have no part in the current distribution of the sensible, that is to say, those who are rendered invisible and inaudible um, in the current ordering of the society, uh, find a way to make themselves visible and heard by acting in unexpected ways and taking roles that is um, uh, unexpected of them. And I think that is... That is a unique uh, way of thinking about protests that, is, that puts them uh, in a different place than, uh, say, Habermas, because there is, I think, a, a misleading way of thinking of Ranciere as a thinker of, uh, say, recognition, for instance. Uh, but I think what he is saying is much more radical than that. Right? He is suggesting that what we have uh, here is a case in which you don't have a marginalized actor who is doing something, but rather um, a subject who has been rendered inaudible and invisible in the current distribution of the sensible, finding a way to catch the eye of the others by imitating the words uh, of, of others themselves. So there is that theatrical aspect of uh, political action that I, I draw on uh, from Ranciere as well in that sense. Yeah, so let's let's talk a bit more about theatricality because that's another major theme of your book. Uh, and you you draw on Ranciere, but also Rousseau, who is kind of perhaps the great theorist of of the theater, uh, to look at protest as performance and pay close attention to protest aesthetic dimension, which I think a lot of a lot of political theorists just ignore. So, can you say a bit about what we gain when we consider protest from this perspective? Sure. I mean, one of the issues that I try to explain in the book is that um, Rousseau is, of course, a, a major critic of theater. Uh, and and in, um, usually this has been read in a way that emphasizes Rousseau's emphasis on direct political action, right? Uh, the, the usual reading of Rousseau's critique of theater is that uh, theater... Um, leads people to become uh, passive spectators uh, watching the spectacle that is presented to them. They remain isolated and passive. And, and in response, Rousseau offers the alternative of public festival, which is an analog to uh, the assembly in the social contract. This is uh, what um, 
Paul Thomas argued, for instance. Um, so I suggest that, that that is a misreading of, of Rousseau. Uh, I think Rousseau finds theater problematic, uh, not because it leads uh, spectators to become uh, passive, uh, but because uh, it shows spectators uh, that um, the actor can take a role other than what is expected of him. So, so when when we what the theater does is to emphasize the indeterminacy of social roles. That the fact that the social roles are not natural. That that roles we can change how we act uh, and and act in ways totally unexpected of ourselves that is what theater is and for from source perspective i suggest that this is a deeply problematic thing because it undermines um, uh, the order of the society it runs the risk of undermining the order of the society and in fact this is precisely what he says in in the letter to the lumber so so what Rousseau considers a problem, I think, is it becomes uh, something that is valuable for Ranciere, right? Because uh, what Ranciere is suggesting is that you have a distribution of the sensible, uh, which allocates certain roles on the basis of capacities, and, and in doing so uh, also excludes uh, uh, some uh, by rendering them uh, inaudible, pushing to them, uh, them to this realm of darkness, he says. And the only way to shape, change that distribution of the sensible is for those people who are rendered inaudible and invisible to uh, take on a role uh, that they do not have, act in ways that is unexpected of them and thereby catching the eyes of others, thereby changing, thereby becoming visible and audible and, and thereby changing the distribution of the sensible. So I think the theatricality aspect that I emphasize is is a little different from, for instance, how Charles Tilly talks about political action in terms of theatricality, where he argues that you have these well-rehearsed roles whereby the peasants uh, and the, let's say, the landlords, landowners, perform their own roles by looking at uh, former struggle. What I'm suggesting is not that these people are taking on roles that has been rehearsed before, but rather they are taking roles that is unexpected of them uh, to jolt uh, the existing distribution of sense uh, out of order. And and, uh, perhaps the best example to this um, that I can give uh, comes from Gezi protests. One of the things that was... um, uh, that was raised as a criticism of the Gezi protests by uh, one of the uh, famous commentators, John Twal, who is a sociologist uh, in Berkeley. Um, his argument was that what you see here is the new petty bourgeoisie um, engaging in this um, action uh, that they never did before, right? Uh, and he, he, he claims that it is uh, it was interesting to see these... Uh, um, white collar workers coming from their jobs in their high heels and uh, um, you know well dressed uh, yuppies coming to the park and doing things and and he he seems he suggests that for a brief period they they um, took part in this joy of acting together with others but I think when such dismissive accounts uh, are missing is that it was precisely the fact that this was totally unexpected of these actors to take part in this protest that made this protest uh, so radical, so important, so different from uh, uh, all the other protests uh, that happened before, right? It was clearly, it was precisely because nobody was expecting these um, uh, well-dressed yuppies working in uh, around near, uh, um, you know, working around in in these high rises uh, around the park joining in with the uh, sex workers in the park to do something together is the thing that made this so different, so so uncontrollable by the existing uh, discourses. Um, so I think what Rancière enables me to see is, is precisely that unexpected, unpredictable part of these events, not as a failure, not as, a, as something to uh, be dealt with, but as something that is essential to democratic action. So another theme you've kind of already mentioned a bit, but I want to spend a bit of time unpacking it with you, is the concept of political friendship. It's, and it's a term that you draw from Aristotle. 
but would you mind explaining what you mean by political friendship and then how you think this concept helps us understand protest differently? Yes. So, so the issue that I say exists in the current way of thinking about democratic action is, is this idea of reducing democratic action to the immediate reactions of a political subject. And this emphasis on immediacy, which I suggest comes from Rousseau. So what I want to say is that if we look at political action as an immediate reaction of a political subject, we will inevitably lose sight of the um, uh, practices of political actors who create those events. So I, I, I argue that we need a new conceptual lens that can uh, reveal us those um, practices that are erased by the current way of thinking about democratic action. And in order to do that, I turn to Aristotle and his conception of political friendship, uh, which uh, emphasizes um, uh, practice um, over uh, immediate unity, over a, a sense of concern. So, so let me briefly um, uh, try to explain what I'm doing there. Um, of course, there's a huge literature on political friendship uh, and uh, Aristotle uses it in Nicomachean ethics. He doesn't do much with it, so the, the literature is very diverse as a result. But one thing that is uh, that has become, I think, accepted over the years uh, is thanks to the work of these um, uh, uh, theorists, uh, such as Bernard Riach, uh, Jill Frank, etc., is that uh, we now seem to agree that political friendship uh, is modeled on what um, uh, Aristotle calls advantage friendship, uh, uh, which emphasizes the instrumental aspect of the relationship that we are talking about. In other words, rather than uh, a communitarian understanding of political friendship, we have now come to think of political friendship as something um, that people engage in in order to do something, right? So that is, there is an instrumental aspect there. So. When I say political friendship, uh, I, um, I turn to Aristotle, who um, insists that political friendship is different from political friend uh, friendship of the kindred and comrades, uh, since he argues, unlike them, uh, and in resemblance to friendship among voyagers, uh, it rests on a sort of compact. Um, whereas brothers and uh, comrades hold everything in common, um, fellow citizens share certain definite things uh, and by coming into an agreement of what they hold in common, they become friends. So I suggest that that act of coming together, coming to an agreement on what they share, requires what I call intermediating practices such as um, deliberation, judging, understanding, but also um, what I call uh, space-making um, um, organizing the distribution of mundane uh, activities uh, um, um, such as distribution of um, food in in, uh, in the park or in um, uh, Occupy Wall Street too, we saw this, that people uh, organized so as to distribute goods and services uh, during the occupation so as to keep the occupation. And it is what political friendship does is uh, to emphasize those practices through which people come to an agreement without um, seeing the disagreements um, as a shortcoming, but as an aspect of what political friendship uh, is all about. One of the things that uh, Aristotle insists is that as, an ad as a kind of advantage friendship, uh, political friendship is full of complaints and disagreements. Uh, and that is something that is considered uh, as a problem for, by some of the commentators who talk about these events. For instance, when uh, people talk about Occupy Wall Street or, or Gezi protests, they, they say that they couldn't even come up with a list of demands. There were so many disagreements with regard to what they were doing. And, and the groups were so diverse that they could not possibly do anything together. From uh, a perspective uh, that takes its uh, grounding from Aristotle's notion of political friendship, that is what what is what makes these uh, events interesting in the first place that we don't expect a, a kind of unity uh, and and that the very diversity of the protest is 
uh, as central to uh, the creation of this relationship of political friendship, which is bound to be fleeting uh, because it rests on uh, activity. Um, and, and it is very difficult to sustain this kind of activity for a long period of time. Although, again, something that is that is that we forget whenever we talk about these spontaneous events, these spontaneous events last uh, for a long time, for weeks on end in, in all of these cases that we have talked about. Um, so they need to be sustained through ongoing activity, but that activity cannot last uh, forever uh, in that sense. Uh, but that is not something that is that should be taken as a uh, shortcoming, but uh, as rather uh, an aspect of what these uh, events are. Good. So just to wrap up then, um, I, I think this is like the big question, and you've, you've kind of hinted at the answer all the way through, but just as kind of a summing up. Um, so... I think you know we, we've been through another wave of protests in 2020. That's and I, I I'm not quite sure how the history book's going to be written on that, right? But um, you know, on the one hand, it could be that this was seen as a big breakthrough moment with respect to racial justice in the U.S., or it could be that you know there's a backslide and we're we're nowhere and there's not significant change, and so it's just again seen as another eruption, right? Um, that that went nowhere, and I, I think similarly with Gezi, probably I assume that the main narrative in in Turkey is that since Erdogan's kind of consolidated power since the Gezi Park protests, then it's just seen as this protest that was irrelevant because in the end Erdogan and his party have kind of consolidated power. So so how does your reading of spontaneity and your kind of troubling of that category, or at least how it's understood in kind of contemporary political theory, how does that troubling that help us understand Gezi Park differently? This is something, again, uh, a question that not only we are dealing, but people after 1968 dealt with as well. Uh, again, with 1968 too, you see this backlash uh, that uh, comes in response to the events of 1968. Um, and, and the same thing can be observed in in Gezi Park protests, right? It, it was, it wasn't, it, Erdogan's consolidation of power is not only, one can say, is um, rendering Gezi protests irrelevant, one can even argue that it is precisely because of Gezi protests um, and and the uh, threat uh, that Erdogan felt as a result of that uprising, that he found it necessary to consolidate power um, in, in, uh, to such an extent, right? So one can, in fact, argue that um, and, and there are people who do this, that Gezi protest was actually opened the door to authoritarianism that was already in process, but, but uh, accelerated that process uh, in certain ways. And all of this um, may uh, suggest that those uh, commentators who insist on uh, criticizing the protesters for not uh, uh, organizing enough, um, uh, and um, as, as a result, not thinking about the aftermath of the protests, etc., were uh, in some, uh, in certain ways, correct. Right? After all, all of these things uh, resulted in what some might call failures. Uh, again, you can think of Arab Spring here. We have in Egypt um, another dictatorship, perhaps some may argue even worse than what was uh, the case before. Uh, and I I do not deny that there is a backlash. What I want to suggest is that there is something unique in those events that we have to keep a record of. And this is this is the part that I take from uh, Walter Benjamin's account uh, in his thesis on uh, philosophy of history, where he talks about how you have all these, uh, you have these moments in history where you, you have the experience of defeat. And yet those moments uh, carry on this potential um, to be, rethought again in the future, right? They carry this potential of, uh, this, they carry this emancipatory potential, which is so potent that all these uh, authoritarian governments are um, spending a great deal of time and effort to erase the memory of these events. This is especially the case in Gezi protests, again, where Erdogan regime is now 
criminalizing these events, putting literally putting Gezi literally on trial by um, uh, imprisoning a handful of uh, activists by suggesting that they were the uh, organizers behind this event, right? So, so clearly they see a threat in the in the memory of the event, in what has been done uh, by these people in these moments of democratic action, who showed us that there is another way of doing things that is possible, that we are not uh, stuck in this um, uh, alternativeless uh, existence. So I think it is for that reason, it is important to focus on what these people did on the ground in these events so as to hold on to that um, emancipatory potential so that they can be reenacted later on. Um, as, as we see, uh, again, one of the most interesting things that I saw in Gezi protests was this constant allusion to May 68, for instance, its uh, symbols, imagery, etc. It was... Um, um, in, in t- to use Benjamin's phrase, uh, what the protesters did was not only to draw inspiration from May 68, but also an attempt to grasp a fleeting, fragile, yet tremendously powerful constellation, uh, which their own era uh, has formed with a definite earlier one. A linking of hopes of those who brought into being those two chronologically distant events. So it is for that reason, I suggest that it is important for us to hold on to uh, the memory of that event and rather than erasing what happened in those moments, to keep record of those so that they can be taken up uh, later uh, by uh, other movements uh, as well. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Chida. And the book is called In the Street, uh, Democratic Action, Theatricality, and Political Friendship. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. It was, uh, it was wonderful to talk to you about the book. The Just Riot Theory podcast is part of my British Academy Mid-Career Fellowship project called Just and Unjust Riots a normative assessment of militant protest. It is produced by Thea Hartman at the Public Engagement with Research Unit at the University of Southampton. Funding for the podcast series was provided by the British Academy.